How do you quantify the economic value of cultural knowledge? The ability to share one's unique know-how within the marketplace, which ultimately leads to new innovations. How would you collect this handful of intangibles and somehow alchemize it into numbers, graphs, and PowerPoints? David M. Rubenstein fellow Danny Bahar from Brookings Institution is tackling just that. And he joins us today on Immigration Nerds. Through his studies and research, we discuss the more implicit factors that migrants contribute towards economic growth in a nation. Because as we know, if it doesn't make dollars, then it doesn't make sense. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have Danny Bahar, David M. Rubenstein Fellow for Brookings Institution, and it is an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks, Ian. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Yes. Today we're talking about the economics of immigration, the economics of migration. We're taking this time today to get into the actual studies and the research of, right. of the matter. So that's why we have you here, <laughs> right, right. the expert. <laughs> so, uh, well, but first, uh, Danny, t- uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'm an immigration nerd myself, so I'm really glad to be a guest in your amazing mm-hmm. podcast. Um, uh, well, I'm an economist uh, mm-hmm. who really focuses on, on studying migration, but I think that what led me here is um, a little bit of my personal background. In May 14th of 1948, there was a ship that arrived to the port of La Guaira in Venezuela, near Caracas, who brought in my my grandmother. She was 23-year-old at the time. She was coming from England. She lived there for 10 years after fleeing her hometown in Poland because of the Nazis. She was adopted by a non-Jewish family who took her in. All of her family were murdered by the Nazis in, in Eastern Europe. And she was coming to visit her two of her sisters. One of them actually saved her life. She was the one who forced her uh, to join this train that, that's, that saved her when she was 15 years old. Then she met my grandfather, who was another refugee from Yugoslavia in Venezuela. And, and you know, they married and they made a life in a new country surrounded by really the kindness of, of, of the Venezuelan people. Mm-hmm. I was born a few decades later. And, and then I myself decided to fulfill a childhood dream, which was I wanted to become Israeli. And Mm. I moved, I immigrated to Israel. Mm. Um, So then I was a migrant myself again, uh, you know, struggling to get to fit in society, learning language, finding jobs, uh, serving in the army, actually. I I think that my personal background, it's it's a lot of what motivated me to to study the huge benefits that migrants and refugees bring to economies. Mm. If they're allowed to integrate, if they're allowed to work, so uh, my life took me to do a PhD um, here in the U.S. So then I immigrated once again, <laughs> right. and right now I'm here. I, I've been working a lot on, on the benefits, on, on measuring the benefits and the gains from migration, right. um, which uh, I, I think he, we tend to, when we think about migration, we tend to focus for the most part on on on, on a I want to say a very narrow part of the economic game, which is like, are migrants affecting our wages? Are they affecting right. our, our jobs uh, and so on? Mm-hmm. But there's much more to that. Right. I mean, migrants are, to put it simply, connecting the world. 
um, and transferring knowledge and transferring and easing trade and investment. And there are so many things that, 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 that has been shown in economic research that migrants are crucial in, in, in doing that helps development, that helps economic growth, that goes much beyond like labor markets. Right, right. Those things sometimes go unnoticed because they're much less palpable, but, right. but they are there and they're very strong. Right, absolutely. And so you've taken steps to have measurable studies to, to show that connection, right? Right. So could you describe to us what you're currently working on and what you hope to gain from these studies? Right. Well, so, you know, I, I've been focusing quite a bit on a very particular niche of this field that, that we call the economics of migration, mm -hmm. which relies on the following thought. Learning things, for humans to learn things, is hard. It's not that you just read a Wikipedia page and you can become a doctor or a dentist, right? Right. Um, no, none of <laughs> us or, or, or listeners want to be flying an airplane if the pilot says, hey, I, you know, I had A's in all my grades, but this is the first time I fly. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. this process of learning takes a lot, takes a lot of right. human interaction. That pilot probably has to sit with another more experienced pilot for many hours to just see and understand what's happening and so on. And, and, and this learning and this know-how is crucial for the economies too, mm. because what makes us more productive as an, as, a, as an economy, what makes a worker more productive, what makes a firm more productive, what makes a country more productive, mm. is basically to know how to make more with the same resources, yeah. right? And, productivity. And, and productivity, productivity, exactly. Right. Productivity is the, the biggest mm. source of economic growth. 60% right. of cross-country income differences is explained by productivity. Mm. So if all what I'm telling you is true, that learning how to become more productive, the process of learning, the process of accumulating know-how really requires human interaction, then mm. we must see something about this when we look at the most extreme example of labor mobility, which is migration. Mm -hmm. Right. When people move from country to country, do we see that country that is receiving the migrants or the country that is sending the migrants benefit in terms of know-how and productivity? So, so I've been working a lot on, on, on these topics in several studies. The recent one that I'm working on right now is one that is actually looking at Yugoslavian refugees mm -hmm. in Germany in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the short summary of the, of right. the study is that when the Yugoslavian war erupted, the civil war in, in the early 1990s that ended up with the dissolution of the country, the disintegration of the country, it, that created the largest refugee crisis since World War II in mm -hmm. the early 1990s. And about more than half a million, even 600,000 refugees actually ended up in Germany. Mm. Um, Germany opened their doors and, and allowed them to stay in with a temporary status, what you have here like as a TPS, something right, similar to the TPS. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and there they worked, they, they were able to work, they integrated, and we were able to work with the German authorities to look at that, at that data and, and look really at how many people worked in each different industry of these Yugoslavian refugees. And then when the war ended or when the peace treaties were signed uh, just a few years later, because these people had TPS, they were actually forced to go back. Their visas <sighs> ended and they, they needed to go back. So what we're looking is that what happened to the industries in the Yugoslavian countries where these refugees were working at while in Germany. Right. You might think that these people were working by working in Germany, who who is an advanced economy. They were probably exposed to better technologies, better management techniques, and, and, and so on and so forth. And what we see is that 
the industries in all the Yugoslavian countries that really boomed during the 2000s and even after, in the late 90s were the right. same ones that these people were working at while they were in Germany. Wow. Okay. So, so, <laughs> and, and we find that this effect is even stronger when we look at migrants, at refugees or migrants that were, you know, working in a managerial capacity, that were working in, in skills that were more analytical and cognitive as opposed to manual. So there's a lot of evidence that shows that this uh, is a story about them bringing know-how that ultimately it became key to rebuilding the country that was just destroyed a few years before. Right, right. Being able to gain that know-how, you have to be in proximity with you know, different cultures and where they develop techniques that might be unique in their areas, in their regions. And to be in close proximity to that, you can pick that up and bring that back to your region and, and develop there. Right. And, and you know, we see this, this is basically really at the core of, of basically how migration is a key input for economic development. Mm-hmm. Maybe bringing this idea to the ground right. and here to the U.S. Like one, I think one lesson is that, yeah, you want to really help the countries that are now struggling and, and there's you see a lot of refugees coming out, like Central America, right. then maybe the best thing you can do is to let these people integrate as much as possible. Some of them will go back, some of them will stay. The ones who stay uh, will keep contributing to this country. The ones who go back will really contribute back to their home countries, l- really helping in that development process. In terms of economic impact of migration, uh, let's look at it more at a macro level and probably a longer time frame. What are some of the unique traits and characteristics that immigrants bring to uh, a new country when they arrive? Right. Look, I would say uh, I would say at least two things. One of them is skills. Mm-hmm. Skills and and what we were talking about just now, know-how and willingness to work in in certain jobs that not necessarily natives are working on. Natives I mean like locals who are already in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one is connections, is connections um, with uh, their home countries or, or other countries where there are migrants of the same nationality that allows for easier trade and easier uh, capital flows. So just to give a couple of examples, right. um, also citing research of, of great colleagues of mine that have been working on this for far longer than I am. Um, so, for instance, we, you know, there's often a discussion here, and very often it is really crowded by politicians. Right. I, I don't know if they really put a lot of hours into learning all the facts, but mm-hmm. but they definitely use it sometimes as a political message. And, and there's this discussion or this uh, impression or myth, as you were saying before, that migrants will migrants will take over jobs of locals. Mm-hmm. Migrants would affect the wages of locals. Right. They will create unemployment, and, and we we've heard that many more times that we that I am happy to hear on the news. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that that's not really supported by the evidence. I mean, when right. you look at the evidence, you rarely see that um, a huge inflow of migrants uh, depresses wages or creates unemployment. And if if they do. It is really for a very short period of time, and the effects are very small. And, and the logic of the short period of time is that that happens, the possible negative effects that migrants could have on wages, for instance, will be offset by an increase in investment in capital. This is a very economist jargon, but I'm talking about you know machineries for firms or buildings and, and highways and so on. But this is the logic. If you think of a firm 
that mm-hmm. suddenly has, think of a city as if it was a firm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the firm has now 10 workers and 10 machines. And now you have like a one-to-one ratio of machine to worker. And suddenly, you know, you have a drop of 100 workers to the factory. And now you have 110 workers and 10 machines. And of course, that factory is going to be quite dysfunctional, right? right? Because, you know, not every worker will have access to a machine and so on. Well, the dysfunctionality will, of course, affect the productivity of the firm and, you know, wages, because wages depend on productivity. But that would only last until the firm is able to bring bring up another 100 machines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a little bit of time. That takes a little bit of money, right? But but it happens. Right. So so you can think about that in the terms of the, of the country and uh, or the city and so on. And just to finish the idea on the second point that I was telling about skills. Right. Uh, what we actually do see in also in the evidence, and this is research by, by Giovanni Petty, who's a professor in California, he finds actually that when migrants arrive to a city or to a country, the locals actually experience an increase in their wages, mm. which is yeah. quite um, not, it's not very, the intuition yeah. is not quite there, right? But the logic here, what happens in that process is that when migrants arrive, then that creates an opportunity for locals to maybe find other jobs where they have skills that are comparable better than the migrants, for instance, speaking English, mm-hmm. um, and they can get better jobs. So, for instance, when there's a huge inflow of people that are willing to work in the back end of the kitchen, which are fundamental workers, maybe the locals are now able to go and work as the hosts of the restaurant or the waiters where they're actually going to get a higher salary. Mm-hmm. So you do you do see this this upgrade in occupational mobility that actually results in higher wages. And this has been shown in the U.S., in Denmark, for instance, in in other cases. Right, right. So some of the opposing views to that, okay, if we have open borders and a a welfare state, this new influx of people will eventually drain the country's resources. Any sort of credence to that? Well, look, open borders is kind of an extreme case, right. uh, which which we have seen to some extent in the European Union. Actually, when you see these, the map of Brexit vote, for instance, which right. is maybe the biggest example of of rejection to globalization and to migration, Correct. you do see, if I'm not mistaken, that, that the counties that voted for Brexit are actually the counties that have no migrants. <laughs> Sure. So, so, so I think that a lot of these is, the people it, who don't have direct experience, exactly, uh, going off preconception of what they think and and feel is the issue with uh, migration, immigration, rather than having direct contact and experience with that, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 here there, there's there's an important study that I think we should mention, which was put forward I think a couple of years ago by the National Academy of Sciences. Mm. Uh, and that that report was specifically looking at that question: whether uh, migrants actually represent a fiscal burden, like are they really mm-hmm. draining res- like taxes, right. uh, you know, taxpayers' money, and so on. Right. And, and this report actually brought in a, a vast panel of experts on both sides of the aisle um, to look mm-hmm. at these questions. And you know, it's a it's a very long document; it has like six hundred pages and so on. But but around four hundred, around the page four hundred and ninety-five, something like that. <laughs> okay. There is one of the most important lines, yeah. paragraph think, three. Yeah, <laughs> that I think uh-huh. that I think answers that question, which is like on on average, migrants actually tend to contribute in net to the fiscal uh, accounts of a country. 
Right. Because think about it. I mean, people will think, well, migrants come here and then uh, maybe they, you know, if there's a huge inflow of migrants who are going to crowd hospitals and schools and, and that comes out of money. And and I think those are in circumstances when there's really a huge inflow, which is right. not what we're seeing now in the U.S. But but these people also eat. They wear clothes. I mean, you pay mm-hmm. taxes when you eat and when you wear clothes. Right. They work. And even if they work in the informal economy, some of them still pay taxes. But there's a lot of discussion. But I think for the most part, it's important to remember that. Like, you know, migrants, even if they're undocumented, they will uh, they will pay taxes. Right. Um, and and a lot of times, often, studies show that they, on average, use less government resources uh, than Correct. native-born citizens. Correct. I think one of your colleagues, Hillel Rappaport? Yeah, he's my co-author. Yes, yeah. yes. So what I thought was interesting in terms of the impact of trade, for every 10% increase in migration, it led to a 1% increase in export trade, which is interesting. So like if I come from Jamaica and I move to America, I still have a tie to my home country and there might be items and goods that are not in America that Maybe I miss back home, whether it's like spices or foods or or even clothing. And that sort of opens up trade between these two countries that might not have previously if those people did not move to the country. So so that was I'm glad you bring that up because that was actually the when I started uh, a few minutes before when I said like that would be like the second big effect of migration, which is like the network creation. In that particular study with, with Hillel Rapaport, who's my co-author, and by the way, he's, he's one of the brightest um, migration economists uh, out there, and he really has spent yeah. a lot of his career, all of his career working on this. And so all of you listening should really take a look at his yeah, profile and, sure. and read his for readings. Sure. Um, for instance, we're, let's think about South Africa and France, which are the countries that I use as an example in the mm-hmm. paper. What we're looking there is that when French people move to South Africa, then South Africa actually becomes an exporter of wine. Mm. So this is a particular good mm. that France is good at doing. Right. And it's not necessarily exporting to France, but to the rest of the world. So this is a measure of like, you know, you're, you're becoming very productive in something that your migrants are good at. Right. And there's actually a good example about this in South Africa, because I don't know if, if many of your listeners, listeners have been to South Africa, but near mm. Cape Town, there's this little town called Franschhoek Valley, mm. which means the French corner in Dutch. In, right. in Afrikaans, sorry. And um, uh, this town was actually founded in the late 16th century by uh, French Huguenot refugees who were expelled by France because of their mm. religion. And they went to South Africa and they said, well, what do we do now? Well, let's just make wineries. Right. <laughs> do and, what we know. <laughs> and, and, and those, and, right. and Franschhoek Valley is the home of some of the most renowned wineries of wow. South African wine nowadays. Wow. Now, but but your logic um, is right, and, and and the idea that in particular um, migrants play a huge role in explaining bilateral trade has been mm-hmm. researched and studied and shown many ways. And there's one particular study, with your permission, just in in a very short line that sure, I think sure. it ref- <laughs> it refers to the U.S. and I think it's a great example. And this was done by two great colleagues, uh, Chris Parsons, who's a professor in Australia, and Luis Vecina, who's um who, who's in in the U.K. And they look, for instance, at the migration of the boat people, of the Vietnamese boat people to the U.S. Mm -hmm. They they came in the late 70s as refugees. And they're actually, there was a policy of, of, um, you know, uh, 
locating them or settling them in different states of the U.S. randomly, which for mm. an economist, when you say randomly, it's like, you know, it's like heaven and honey, right? right? Because that gives you the what you need in order to, to really yeah. differentiate yeah. between causality, which is what we're looking at, or just a correlation, correlation right? Yeah. Um, so when, when these people were like reallocated uh, randomly, then you end up with some states that had a lot of refugees from Vietnam and some states that had few. And then in the mid-90s, when the U.S. restarted the trade with Vietnam after having many years of, of, of banning trade, what you see in the data is that the states that actually had the most Vietnamese refugees because of a random allocation several years back are the states that are trading bilaterally much more with Vietnam, Vietnam. right? So, so these important networks are crucial mm. for creating trade because trade is a hard thing, right? You need right. to know your partner there. You need to make sure that nobody's screwing you. Yeah. So, so, so the migrants really help. The goods. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Migrants really help in, in defining those bridges and not only for trade, but also for investment, for instance, for, for foreign investment. There's a lot of research that has shown that that's the case too. Right. Building those uh, networks. Correct. Between. Migration help bridge economic gaps, like the wine from, from France. Building that connection opened up a, a whole new industry in that area where they can take advantage and, and trade from right. that, that new location. So it builds the, the networks uh, across the world between cultures. What are some of the, the future projects you're looking to pursue? And if maybe you don't have a, a project in mind, but the next sort of questions you feel should be uh, tackled in, in the world of economics and immigration. Right. So uh, as I was saying at the beginning, I think that for for too long, economists really ha- the, the, the economics has really focused on, on, on labor market effects of migration, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, all these questions we just discussed briefly on whether... Uh, you know, you have no idea how many papers that are out there about it, whether migrants increase wages, lower wages, right. and, and so on. There's mm-hmm. so much that has been written about that. And I think that there's less that has been written about migrants as an asset right. to move, you know, skills and knowledge and, and places to That's come. That's not a part country. of the public and, and, discourse right, right now. Right, right, right. And also mm-hmm. not not so much in academia. I mean, it's, mm. it's really coming up, but it's up and coming, but, it, but it's still like not quite there and i think right. that i i really i'm really trying to focus on understanding that because i think that there's something there that we still haven't figured out <laughs> about right. why is it that migrants could really are really a great driver for know-how from place to place and how does that reflect in economy so we talk about exports for instance mm-hmm. but um i'm also working a lot on on innovation mm. and how actually migration and entrepreneurship and, and That's, entrepreneurship yeah. too, right? So, so mm-hmm. for instance, uh, two thoughts on those two things. So, you know, on innovation, we're looking, for instance, that migrants are also crucial in the takeoff of new technologies in places where they arrive in terms of patenting. Um, actually, we have a study that we are we just finished with a couple of colleagues where we see that imagine that you take every single technology in the world and you look at every country and you look at all the patents that every country is doing in, in each technology and you just divide each one of those cells, like country technology, in 10, based on like the first 10, the first patent, the second patent, the third patent. What we see right. is that the very first few patents that emerge in a country in a technology that that technology was never patented in that country before mm-hmm. uh, have a much higher share of migrant inventors. 
Wow. Right. Okay. So migrants, okay. and and frankly, by the way, we that's something that that we don't say enough, but we see that this in the U.S. Um, the work by Bill Kerr, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, has shown the incredible impact um, and importance that migrant inventors had in Silicon Valley. If mm. you go now and look at all the patents that are being patented in Silicon Valley and the rest of the U.S., you see a huge share of migrants as inventors there. Close to 40% of uh, the startup right. unicorns come from CEOs of people who were born outside of the country, actually. So right. Those so, who so, so in terms of entrepreneurship in particular, we right. also have a lot of that. So in the U.S., the, the, the fact that was also brought by Bill Kerr, um, who, by the way, has a great book that you should all read, which okay. is called The Global Gift of Talent. We're jotting down notes uh, here. We're jotting down <laughs> notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, which actually we launched uh, or we made a big event for the book here at Brookings um, uh, like a year ago or less than a year ago. And, and the yeah. video is posted on our website. Yeah. And, and, and he shows that all those things. And in particular, there, there's this amazing data point, which is that migrants in the U.S. are 15% of the population, one mm -hmm. five but they are 25% of the entrepreneurs, wow. right? So they are entrepreneurial in much higher propensity Percentage, than locals, yeah. which you know, which makes a lot of sense because the act of migrating is a risk-taking act, right? It's a very big risk. So, yeah. so, 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 so you have like a group that are, that are basically are much more of, of a risk-takers, which is what you need for, for entrepreneurship. Yeah. And they really have shaped you know, the, 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 the entrepreneurial scene here right. in the U.S. Yeah, the mindset to have not knowing what the future may hold, but having that self-belief that, okay, once I get into this new area, I'm going to make a, a living for myself and I'm going right. to make it what I can. That takes, a one, a lot of initiative, takes a lot of self-belief and resilience, right? Right. So march into the unknown, <laughs> right, let's right, say. Right, and right. when you're building a country, oh, sorry, excuse me, when you're building a company and you have an idea, you don't necessarily know where you can take it, but you have that fundamental belief that right. uh, you can build it to something that is greater than what it is right now. And there are like, there's a domino effect there that we are, we, it's hard for us to see, but um, let me just bring in another one of my colleagues. His name is Gaurav Kana. He's a <laughs> oh, professor. Oh, we're taking a bunch of notes today. Uh -huh. he, his name, uh, he, he, he's a professor at UC San Diego. And What's he, his name? Uh, yeah. Gaurav Kana. Okay. Um, and he, uh, working with his colleague, uh, Nicolas Morales, they've shown, for instance, that just the idea, just the high demand for engineers in the U.S., for instance, through the H-1B visa program, right. the, the program that allows migrants to come in, that actually has created some sort of domino effect in India, hmm. where more and more people actually just thinking that uh, because of the important wage differential that are between working as an engineer in India and the U.S., hmm. just thinking that, you know, there could be huge benefits if they are one of the people that could actually get the H-1B visa lottery, there's more people going into engineering. Hmm. In India, Interesting. and that yeah, actually that is shaping the quality of the high tech in in India. So, so you know, this this all has like important spillovers mm. um, on other countries, which are crucial for a bigger struggle that we have in the world, which is like, why are there some countries that are rich and where there's countries that are poor? And, and it turns out that migration is a really important aspect of it. Um, my, my colleagues, Michael Clemens, who, who's at the Center for Global Development, and, mm -hmm. and Land Pritchett was one of my favorite professors when I was in grad school. And, and he's also 
Um, he's now at Oxford. They've been claiming for many years that, you know, if you want to reduce poverty, so let more people come here. Because just the fact that you, when you move from a poor place to a rich place, you essentially going to, you know, your wage is going to go, go up, up, you're going to be more productive mm-hmm. and so on. So so that's kind of the low-hanging fruit of how to deal with poverty. I know it politically it's very it's very difficult and it's unfeasible, but, you know, that, that should be, I think, in the background of, of everything we think yeah. when we're so passionate about global poverty, but maybe, you know, the easiest thing is just to open a little bit our borders and, and, and to let people locate where they think they could be more productive. Correct. If you had the power to implement or take away one economic policy to help facilitate the most economic growth in America, what would that policy be or look like? I would definitely in, uh, ease significantly ease the migration policies or, or the hardships that 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 policies of migration have on on people who want to come in and work and be productive, and uh, which goes by significantly increasing the quotas that there are there in H one B visas, or even creating uh, ways for for also people who don't necessarily have a college degree to come and work. And let me tell you why: if you go to the BLS website, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, mm-hmm. now you would see um, they have projections of what are the the occupations that are going to grow the most in America in the next 10 or 15 years. And you do see their occupations that you say, yeah, it makes sense for a rich country, like engineers and doctors and so on. But you also see fundamental occupations, which are restaurant workers, healthcare aides, and personal care people. And 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 cleaner, like Mm -hmm. because if you want to have, I mean, for the U.S. to remain as the leading economic power of the world, it needs engineers and it needs inventors and it needs doctors and it needs researchers, but it also needs fundamental workers, as Michael Clemens, uh, I think, rightly so calls them, um, who are gonna do the works that. Perhaps there are not enough people in America that are willing to do those jobs. The engine and, of e- economies, right? So, so, so you, you, if you, if you want good jobs for Americans and for everybody, you need to have people who are also willing to do the jobs that are supporting these engineers and these doctors and so on. Yeah, of course, some of them can come from American citizens, but there might not be enough. And and I think that for that, it's really important to understand that we can't think of of an America that is strong, that is just going to cut migration, whether they're high-skill migration or, or, or fundamental workers, because it's an intrinsic part of its growth. So, so I think that if there's anything wrong with America and immigration, is that we need more and not less. And with that, I thank you, Danny Pahar, for coming on Immigration Nerds. Tune in tomorrow for our bonus episode with Danny where we break down the political, social, and migrant implications of the civil unrest in Venezuela. For more content and immigration updates, please follow us at EIGlaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG Nerds Podcast to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.